It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes, many fruits, not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs, something in your own head, beat it up and I've got no sheets, the whole ladder, put the with the fear, fight down, hype, fire in a fire, with the super seven gangs, the government for hiring the combat site, but you wasn't coming in a hurry, be sure you get down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of... Doom. Well, doom, 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 doom. <laughs> and bloom. But I just want to say one thing. It does sound like it's the hour of doom because outside we're having terrible storms in South Florida today. And hurricane on the way, maybe. Matthew. You never know. Yes, Hurricane Matthew. What did you say? It was a two or a three now? It was a three according to... <sighs> Well, you don't know what's going to happen that in the was next really few fast. days, but I have to say that it really developed fast. It was just kind of like, well, we're sort of watching this. It might become something, and now it's only been, I think, 36 hours since we even heard about it, and it's a three. That was really fast. Well, that should get rid of all those terrible Zika mosquitoes. I'll say that. <laughs> Blow them out to the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you guys out there, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a heck of a hiatus of humility <laughs> in a hellacious world. <laughs> I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net. Well, you'll find, gosh, nigh on 900 Post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Uh-huh. And I'm Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, if I may say so myself. Thank you. Our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. <laughs> we are indeed the watchers on the wall. and We'll watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Like our house? Like our house. <laughs> As usual. I, I think maybe next weekend you need to do a hurricane preparedness show again. I might do a hurricane preparedness show today, depending on <laughs> how much the wind is blowing out there. <laughs> well, our mission is... Yes. What is it? Did I just say that? I already said what our mission was, so there. Is it... Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a piratical possum? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. Absolutely. Any information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only. Are you entertained yet? I'm very entertained. Good. Glad to hear Did you hear my wind sound? I thought that was impressive, yes. That's pretty good. Yes, it was. (laughs) Well, I guess it's because I've lived through a few hurricanes, so I know what it sounds like. Anyway... 
anything we say does not represent <laughs> medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings or post-hurricane settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but modern and standard medical care may not be available in a catastrophe. Bottom line, you better know what to do in medical emergencies and get some supplies, maybe even from the beautiful Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits. If you expect to be of any help in times of trouble, head over to store.doomandbloom.net. But that's just my opinion. Well, I appreciate it. We do take a lot of time and attention to organize them and to put really good quality name brand items. Nothing is knockoff from eBay. Nothing's fake. It's all real and good quality. And we put most everything in waterproof individual bags so it will be saved in case it rains like a hurricane. And things like that. (laughs) I can't get off that hurricane thing. I know, I see. Well, every time we turn on the news, it's like, oh, here's this giant hurricane, and it could be heading for you. (laughs) So it's sort of in the back of my mind. Um, So in case it gets rained on or dropped in a lake, your items will be protected. Very good. I think that is very important. Hey, what's the 411, son? We learn as much from you as you do from us. Take it from me. That is the God's honest truth. So connect with us. It's easy. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you. Absolutely. Contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook. We have a couple of pages. We have Doom and Bloom. You can like us there. We also have Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. We have a group with over 5,000 members now. Super awesome. Survival Medicine Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy is the group. And we also have Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, which is DR Bones Nurse Amy. And we have another podcast, which is all about current events, Survival of America, called Survival, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) AmericanSurvivalRadio.com. Yes, American Survival Radio. And this Wednesday, that would be October 3rd, I think. We will be doing a video cast, our live video cast that we do once a month with our good friends at, yeah, it will be the first Wednesday of the month. Yeah, but it's not the third. What? It's more like the fifth or sixth. Are you kidding? Oh, I'm not. Time oh, just, I hate that. Time ticks by so fast. It's actually the fifth. Look. Oh, October 5th. <laughs> Silly me. Or people could show up on Monday and wait for two days. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but they're right. going to be waiting a while. <laughs> 2016, folks, in case you're listening to this. <laughs> well, it just goes to show how old I've gotten. And you know what? You can make an old man very happy <laughs> by getting a copy of our brand spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, now available on Amazon or on our website at doomandbloom.net. 700 pages of all the news you can use in times of trouble. I guarantee you'll be glad you put our book in your survival library. Let's see what we got going on here. We have a lot, a (laughs) lot of stuff that's happening here. I want to talk about EpiPens for a minute. You know, we're in the... Update us. Yes. We're in the midst of an epidemic of allergies in the United States. Severe allergic reactions like anaphylaxis could be life-threatening emergencies in good times or bad, epinephrine, we use that for the emergency treatment of allergic reaction due to stinging or biting insects, 
foods, drugs, other allergens, as well as even exercise. Exercise can even cause a severe allergic reaction. I know a lot of How people. Sad. I know a lot of people that look like they're allergic to exercise, including myself. That's for sure. <laughs> and of course, it's good for people who are at increased risk, especially people who have had a previous history of anaphylactic or very severe allergic reactions. Now, epinephrine is the drug most commonly used these days, and it's used in an auto-injector that's fast, it's easy, it's an awesome item, but there is a problem. In the United States, one brand of auto-injector, the EpiPen, manufactured by King Corporation, a subsidiary of Pfizer, Big Pharma, and marketed by Mylan, M-Y-L-A-N Corporation, has dominated the market for many years. In 2007, when Mylan acquired the rights to market the product, annual sales of all epinephrine auto-injectors were about $200 bucks. EpiPen had about 90% of the market. Well, looks like Mylan did a good job because in 2015, the market size is now $1.5 billion, up from $200 million. And sure enough, EpiPen still has about 90% of the market. Well, in a move that I can only describe as profiteering, Mylan raised the price from about 100 bucks for a package of two EpiPens in 2007 to about 600 bucks today in 2016. Although it's still less expensive, I have to admit, in the UK and Canada. By the way, these devices, I don't know if you know, they deliver about a dollar's worth of epinephrine. Oh, good. A buck. That's that's the drug, a buck. It's all the delivery system that costs the money. I have to tell you, even that dollar sounds like retail and not actual cost. Yeah, it probably is true. Yes, I think you're probably right with regards to that. In response to all this criticism over their price hikes, Mm -hmm. price gouge, Mylan increased financial assistance available for some patients to purchase EpiPens, a gesture which a Harvard professor... Aaron Kesselheim, medical school professor at Harvard, called a classic public relations move. And they give you up to $300 saving cards that can only be used by a small number of people that need the drug and no one on Medicaid. They do absolutely nothing about the high price, which is still being paid by insurers who ultimately pass the cost on to, guess who? You, consumers, in the form of higher and higher health insurance premiums every year. So what's your option? It might be reasonable for family medics to try to obtain vials of liquid epinephrine from which you pull out the correct dosage with the syringe. Now, sounds complicated. Well, you know what? It's more complicated than the EpiPen. I'll admit that. But it's not $600 more complicated. Here's what you do. You get a vial of 1 to 1,000 epinephrine, some 1 milliliter insulin syringes, and some alcohol wipes. This would be a reasonable thing to do. And the auto-injectors like EpiPens, they have specific instructions. Their instructions are, if you're 66 pounds or greater, you give 0.3 milligrams intramuscularly in the muscle, in other words, or under the skin subcutaneously onto the anterolateral aspect of the thigh. That's pretty much about where the bottom of your jean pockets are. And on the side, you repeat it as you need it. If you're smaller, if you're a child, 15 to 30 kilograms, uh, In other words, about 30 to 66 pounds, then 0.15, 
half the dose in the muscle or under the skin onto the same area and repeat that as needed. Now, they say the manufacturer product information for the specific auto-injector that's being used should always be consulted and that if you give more than two doses sequentially, they should only be administered under direct medical supervision. They do say that uh, this is supposed to be emergency supportive care only, not a replacement for medical care. Now, using an insulin syringe and a vial of injectable solution of 1 to 1,000 epinephrine, 1 to 1,000 means there's 1 milligram in 1 milliliter of epinephrine or 1 milligram, uh, 1 gram per liter. Basically, if you weigh over 65 uh, five pounds, over 66 pounds, 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams, that would be 0.3 to 0.5 milliliters of undiluted drug in the muscle or under the skin in the side of the thigh, and you repeat that every 5 to 10 minutes as needed. In other words, until the allergic reaction goes away. And the maximum dose that you can give is 0.5 milligrams or half a milliliter, 0.5 milliliters. Now, the important thing, if you're going to use it to try to get to the muscle, you need a long needle, a longer needle, a half inch to five eighths inch to ensure injection into the muscle. And if the insulin syringe is not long enough, any three cc syringe would have a needle available, usually attached to it, that meets the criteria. Now, if repeated injections, they shouldn't be administered at the same site. That can cause the blood vessels to constrict in that area and can cause death of tissue. So if you're giving a second injection, always use the other thigh and monitor that person for a period of time because they're going to have some effects. Most likely a fast heartbeat would be, I guess, the most common effect that you would see. So that's something that's very important. Now, there's also a more dilute dose of epinephrine, 1 to 10,000, which is only 0.1 milligram per milliliter. And in that circumstance, you have to give more of an amount. You have to give 1 to 2.5 milliliters. And they give that sometimes intravenously into the vein and the arm. I'm not suggesting that you do that, though. Look for the 1 to 1,000 vials, if at all possible. Much easier to deal with. You'll probably need a prescription from your doctor. If your doctor is willing to prescribe an EpiPen, they might just give you a prescription for a vial of 1 to 1,000 epinephrine if you demonstrate a risk factor, like being outside a lot or having a history of significant allergic reactions. Every doc's different, but it is certainly worth a shot. Now, Amy? Yes. Um, I actually wanted to talk to about something that people wrote into us about, and we, we had discussed EpiPen previously and the cost of it. Uh, some folks were very kind as to write us about generic availabilities of EpiPen, which we were aware of. And I just want to mention that one of the most popular generic brands is called Adrenal Click. And the funny thing is, is their actual price, when you call the pharmacy in this article that I had read about it, they actually called Walmart as a price check. And they were quoted. How much? that a two-pack would be $606. Right, just like the EpiPen. Exactly. So the generics are not necessarily cheaper. Now, one thing that might be helpful is to know that CVS pharmacies and Walgreens and Walmart and even Costco do accept coupons. So you can ask the pharmacy, are they aware of any coupons, for either the generic or the brand name for EpiPen. But they're all 
are alternatives and you should ask about cheaper alternatives. And if your prescription says EpiPen, the pharmacist should be able to substitute possibly a cheaper generic. I'm not sure if your pharmacy will have cheaper generics, but it's possible. And so it's it is wise to at least find out as a good consumer and a good shopper as to what your final price might be. Now, if you do wind up getting Adrenaclick or one of these other generic versions of the EpiPen, remember that the instructions might just be different. They may be given in, in a certain way right. that is slightly different than the EpiPen. And, and actually, that's a really good point because the reason these people are able to have different names is because their delivery system, what you were talking about, the actual plastic injectors, the auto injectors, are slightly different among the manufacturers. It's the same medicine basically inside. It's how it's administered in the device that makes it different. So find out if there's alternatives, if there's generics, how much they are, and if there's coupons. Of course, if you have a copayment, and regardless of brand name or generic, it's going to be the same price for you, this is not an issue. But for folks who really are having to spend the full amount of money, it behooves you to contact the pharmacies again. Also, you may want to contact the companies, like you were mentioning earlier, right. Dr. Bones, that um, in goodwill and trying to get better PR, these companies are offering some decent coupons. So. Uh, just like you take coupons to the grocery store, you know, take your coupons to the pharmacy. Well, I certainly hope they make coupons that people that are on Medicaid can use because that is really tough stuff to try to have people that have to use Medicaid pay that kind of money. Even it's taking ridiculous. 300 bucks off is still well, way beyond the level of what most people can pay. Uh, when this article, they called uh, the Walmart pharmacy, like I was talking about, and they had originally said that the... Adrena Click would be $606, but they asked the pharmacy about discounts and they told the folks who were doing the article that they would accept a good RX coupon and it would bring the out of pocket cost down to $140. Still a lot of money, a week's worth of groceries for, you know, a, a couple. A lot of people. Huh? You, know, a, you know, two people, easily $140 if you don't buy a lot of meat. Um, so. <laughs> It's yeah. tough. I, I don't it's want tough. people to have to make a choice between food and, and medicine. It's horrible what's happening. Well, at least now you know how to put it together through with a vial, a syringe. It's yes. going to take a little longer to get it done, but you probably would be able to afford that better than the auto-injector versions. Now, are, are you going to put this in an article, or have you snuck an article? No, you know I already? have not. No, I have not done an article <laughs> you know, on that yet. This would actually be something good for people to print out. Right, I was waiting for stick it in our book. I, right, yes, <laughs> absolutely, good idea. Well, I definitely am going to do that. I was waiting for more information on this. I'm expecting something to come out with EpiPen and this scandal uh, recently, but I have not seen anything so. We'll see. But I, what I do see in the news uh -oh. and what I do want to talk about is what you talked about, and that is the hurricane. Oh, yay! Hurricane Hurricanes. preparedness. Right. You know, we have probably <laughs> a good month more of hurricane 
danger, hurricane risk that we're going to experience, and we better talk about it now. We just had Hurricane Hermine, and now we have this Hurricane Matthew. You know, the funny thing is, it seems really late. It almost seems like hurricane season should be over. I mean, we're talking about October 1st, tomorrow. Right. It's Saturday. And it seems like October doesn't, you know, oh, what do you mean hurricanes in October? But we've had a lot of serious hurricanes in October. Yes, it's very true. It has been a a big issue. We've had late uh, September hurricanes. We've had late October hurricanes. I think Hurricane Wilma Wilma was was an October hurricane. Did some damage to our house, as a matter of fact. So what's a hurricane? A hurricane is a large tropical storm with winds that reach a constant speed of 74 miles an hour or more. And, of course, in the United States, uh, the hurricanes regularly ravage the Gulf and east coasts of the country, causing lots of damage, billions of dollars in damage. And even in high-risk hurricane zones, most people are really unprepared for the severe rain, winds, flooding, and general mayhem that these storms cause. As a matter of fact, Floridians, until just this year, had over a decade in which they had no hurricanes at all. Now, these storms can be severe, but they don't have to be life-threatening. Now, unlike tornadoes, which pop up suddenly, hurricanes are first identified, like Matthew is, when they're hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles away. We can watch their development, have a good idea of how bad the storm's going to be, how much time we have to get ready. Unfortunately, they affect a lot more area, as you can imagine, than the average tornado. Hurricanes are classified according to wind speed. The Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale uses maximum sustained winds, meaning winds that continuously reach up to a certain amount when the storm hits and stay that way, I think, for a period of 10 minutes uh, at least. The category one is 74 to 95. That was Hurricane Hermine. Category two, 96 to 110 miles an hour. Category three, 111 to 130. 115 is what Matthew is at right now, making it a category three. And category four, 135 to 155 miles per hour. Category five, greater than that. That was. Uh, Katrina, that was Hurricane Andrew, number of hurricanes that we've had. Now, higher category storms may cause incredible damage and loss of life, but if you put together an effective plan of action with regards to shelter, food, power, other important issues, you will do okay. Now, you may also have to make a decision regarding evacuation. Unlike some disastrous scenarios, you might be able to outrun a hurricane if you get enough of a head start. Now, if you live on the coast or by a river, there are going to be rising waters. That's called the storm surge that cause dangerous flooding. And when they think that's going to happen, the authorities will issue evacuation orders in many cases. If you live in trailers, especially, or you live near the coast, this is the wisest course of action. Get out of Dodge. Now, cities no longer have plans for civil defense, but they do for hurricanes, especially in regions of risk. And many times your local city hall or or another hurricane-resistant public building in your own community will be a designated shelter where there'll be supplies and there'll be a place to sleep, even if it's on the floor on, on maybe some air mattresses or cots. Now, if you do choose to leave town, though, plan to go as far inland as you possibly can. Hurricanes gain strength from warm water temperatures over the tropical ocean, but lose strength quickly as they travel over land. Now, that is something that's very important. So the more inland you can get, the better off you'll be. Now, you can certainly make reservations at a hotel 
deep Sounds inland, <laughs> but there may be little I'd, room at the end. I'd rather not get... You're a latecomer. I would rather not get rained on and have something, some debris fly through oh, a window and delicate hurt a... snowflake. No. <laughs> it's called safety and planning ahead. That's right. Speaking of planning ahead, make sure you have that bug out bag ready to go. A lot of people pack for 72 hours off the grid. I think that number is like totally arbitrary. I don't know why they pick that as opposed to anything else. At least have a week's supply of food, drinking water, clothing, medical supplies. That I think is really important. A week. Now, usually you're not going to be ordered to evacuate except in the most extreme cases. And therefore, you are going to be in place and weather, weather the storm. So mm-hmm. let's see how much damage you'll sustain. you got to have an idea of what your home's weak spots are. And indeed, sure enough, the amount of sustained winds that a structure can withstand does vary from place to place. I mean, before Hurricane Andrew in 1992, new homes in Florida had to have the ability to withstand uh, 90-mile-an-hour winds. But since then... They now have to be able to withstand 125 mile an hour winds. So it depends on how likely your area is to be hit by a hurricane. And what in terms of the building codes, right? right, And what strength it is. Right, exactly. So this is the thing if you have a really old home in Florida, for example, where hurricanes do come, and and before the new uh, restrictions in 1992 made the strength of the walls have to withstand 125 mile an hour winds even a hurricane category three can do a significant amount of damage to your home now if you decide to stay in your home make sure you designate a safe room somewhere in the interior of the house it should be in a part of the home most downwind from the direction of the oncoming storm now you figure out who's going to ride out the storm with you and make sure you plan for any special needs they may have, special diet, things like that, their medicines. And of course, make provisions for any animals that you'll be sheltering. Move them indoors, move all outdoor furniture, potted plants either inside the house or chain potted plants and outdoor furniture, not your animals, <laughs> to an outside Please wall. Don't I don't do want that. people to get confused. Save the animals. Yes, don't, don't get confused about They're that. They're our family members. Exactly. So you need some chains to tie those things all together and make sure that they're against the wall so they don't fly around. Now, don't forget to put up the hurricane shutters if you have them. That's basic stuff in south florida one of our big issues is coconuts for goodness sake oh yes they are like cannonballs in a hurricane cut off cut them off the tree before the winds come and the funny thing about palm trees is that their trunks are so spongy that they never seem to snap in half like other trees do yes i also want to say if you're uh in the south florida area you could hire uh the coconut eating squirrels that we have in our <laughs> our area. Yeah, crazy. Maybe we should we could capture a few of them and and you uh, you can keep them by the way and release them in your neighborhood so that you don't have too many coconuts either. We yeah. we have crazy squirrels that get into coconuts. They burrow a hole. They chew a hole that's about yeah. what would you say about three inches? It's not very yeah. big. Three inches. You're gonna have to get into. I guess them. I don't know if they put their head in there. Or they climb in there. I think they climb all <laughs> in, entirely in there. They eat the entire coconut inside. So this all that's left is the hard shell, and of course, then the hard shell falls to the ground, and so we have all of these coconuts with these perfectly round holes. Round, and and the crazy thing is, the holes are perfectly round. What? Right. 
what? Why is the squirrel making a perfectly round hole? I don't understand you know, how they it's not figured like he has out. A drill. How did they figure out? There was one smart squirrel somewhere that figured out that the inside of a coconut has something you can eat, but and and apparently the squirrel <laughs> did it by trial and error by digging for an hour with its teeth to get through all the way through a coconut. There's you know something how hard he didn't a even know what is? was in it. I know it's. And it's amazing. The funny thing is, we did see a squirrel eating this coconut, and the look on its face was a drug-crazed right. squirrel. Like a dope addict. The eyes were wild, and he was just feverishly eating it. Digging into the coconut, yeah. Oh, my. It was like a drug. It was like even on heroin or something. Or meth. Those crazy people on meth. And they're getting bigger, too, here, too. I think that all that Fatter. fat got, in the coconut <laughs> meat. Fat little squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which may make them slower to catch. And they might be tastier, actually, if you think about it. I love coconut. Okay, well, you coconut know. Coconut-flavored squirrel meat. I'll take any source but of anyway, protein, protein in a survival <laughs> setting. So if, if anybody would like to get rid of their coconuts before a storm, we'll, we'll try and capture and release them. And like I said, you can keep them. Now, of course, there are a lot of trees that are not palm trees, and those <laughs> will fall over. And so make sure that you prune them to allow wind to get through. You've got to plan indoors as well. That is something very, very important. Remember that communications might be out in a major storm. So one of the things you need to have is a NOAA weather radio. Lots of fresh batteries. That's going to be very important. Or a hand crank version. That's That would be good, too. You're going to likely lose power, so keep your gas and your propane tanks filled. Install foot and head bolts on double-entry doors. A lot of people don't think about that, but that might be a good idea. Now, as the storm approaches, you're going to want to fill up bathtubs, other containers with water. You're going to want to turn your refrigerator, the freezer, down to their coldest settings. That way, the food won't spoil right away if the power fails. And make sure you know how to shut off the electricity, gas, and water if you have to in case things really get bad. Now, there's another kind of power you should be concerned about in the aftermath of a storm, and that is purchasing power. Indeed, credit card verification, that might be down, so you need to have some cash on hand. So make sure you have enough cash to be able to buy things if you need to, although interestingly enough, don't be surprised if these shelves are all empty. People will have gone on a rampage in the beginning of the storm to try to get all the stuff that they possibly can. And you're not going to find a lot of stuff. Maybe find a bottle of vinegar or something. <laughs> <laughs> not much That's help. <laughs> it probably a is. A box of baking soda. A box of baking soda That's and a bottle even of vinegar. So what can I say? Uh, other things you need, you need to have waterproof tarps available in case you lose some roof shingles. I'll tell you, roofers were incredibly busy after Hurricane Wilma in 2005, and they didn't get to anybody right away. As a matter of fact, for a year, we saw these blue tarps on roofs uh, all over South Florida. It took them at least more than a year to get everybody's roof fixed finally. Now, if you hunkered down in your home during the storm, Make sure you got books, board games, like Doom and Bloom Survival, if I may say so, <laughs> and light sources for when the power goes down. Remember that kids and most adults really go stir-crazy when they are stuck inside, especially if they don't have the smartphones or computers in service. Boy, that is going to be a nightmare. So here's well, you're gonna, where you're going to finally be thankful for those battery-powered handheld gaming devices, whatever 
it is that they use at that time that is going to keep them from going stir crazy <laughs> and being scared to death. So yes, distraction so is good. It helps with relaxation. Things that they're used to doing. Absolutely. And, and take time to discuss a coming storm with your family in advance so everybody knows what to expect. I mean, that's going to keep fear down to a minimum. Give the kids some responsibility as well. If you're going to be leaving, give them the opportunity to pack their own bug out bag. Or, or if you're staying, allow them to select the games to play. You know, Keep their minds busy and that'll keep their nerves calm. Now, after the storm, remember that inland flood water may be polluted. Do not walk around in, drink, nor bathe in this water. Bad idea. Now, st sterilization may be required using some of the methods we've discussed a number of times. Of course, bleach will work, 12 to 16 drops per gallon of water. Uh, 16 drops of iodine or more would also work to sterilize water if the sun is finally out. You can use UV light, as a matter of fact, for about eight hours. That would help sterilize water in a clear two-liter bottle, for example. So those are some ways that you can sterilize water. Of course, boiling water for several minutes would probably do the trick as well. Now, remember, don't eat any fresh food that has come in contact with flood water. If your garden has lots of beautiful tomatoes on it, but it was flooded, well, you might be in trouble and even cans of food that were exposed to flood water you got to wash them off with soap and clean hot water before you open them now after a hurricane there may be down power lines this is a big issue it could be the cause of an electrocution if you walk in water nearby in the aftermath of a storm in some cases entire families have lost their lives jumping into electrified water to try to save a relative so never touch anyone who has been electrocuted without first shutting off the power source. If you can't do that, you're going to have to try to move the victim, but don't touch them. Use some non-metal object, maybe a wooden broom handle, maybe some dry rope to lasso them and, and drag them out of there. But if you don't do that, the current might just pass through their body and shock you. So these are some of the things to be worried about. Now, Hurricane Matthew hopefully will just hit the Bahamas. Looks like, although I feel bad for the Bahamians. Bahamians. Bahamians, yes. But, but <clears throat> we have to know that a major storm like this can easily hit the United States. It's done it before. Katrina, Andrew, many others. And so always be prepared in advance for storms like this. And keep an eye on the Weather Channel, your NOAA Weather Radio, or some other means of seeing what the forecast is we're going to take just a minute for a break you're listening to the survival medicine hour with dr bones and nurse amy joe alton md and amy alton armt we'll be well, right back. yes we'll be right back oh, sorry I didn't... <laughs> in these days of terrorists active shooters and worse every school workplace and homestead should have the equipment to save a life the first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. And we're back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. Hey, you know, we talked a little bit about the recent ban on kratom, which was an herb that has 
properties that help people relieve chronic pain, depression, PTSD, and even helps get people off things like heroin. It may have a little bit of addictive potential, however, and does induce a feeling of a state of well-being. Mm -hmm. And so, indeed, it did come under pretty significant scrutiny by the FDA, but they sort of abruptly, August 30th, decided that September 30th, that they were going to ban the plant, its active ingredients, and all the rest that goes along with it. Now, Mm -hmm. since millions of people use this stuff on a regular basis, well, they got a little upset. And sure enough, there were 130,000 signatures on a recent White House petition asking the DEA to reverse its action, or at least reconsider its action. And now, and this is actually, I'm very proud of this because this is a a type of example of democracy in action. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a rare bipartisan effort, 50 members of Congress have asked the DEA to hold off on the upcoming ban on the active ingredients in the plant kratom. It's a member of the coffee family. We're not talking about an opioid here or an opiate here. And indeed, if you just go to YouTube and look up Kratom Saved My Life, say, you'll find a lot of videos about people that believe that it really was beneficial for them and indeed, they say, saved their life. Politicians aren't the only officials that suggest that the DA's decision might have arrived a little hastily. Academicians at Sloan Kettering, Columbia University, they suggest the plant may have properties that could be harnessed into making in the future useful non-opioid painkillers. And so this would be something that not only politicians, regular people, but even academics agree with. Pretty amazing to me that all this is happening after the DEA banned, for a period of two years, the two active ingredients in Kratom, that's metragenine and 7-hydroxymetragenine, and categorize them as Schedule One drugs, I, the same category as heroin and LSD. It is incredible. How does it make that leap? We're not talking about moving up the ladder slowly. Oh, we've done more research. We feel it's a little more addicting. Oh, we've done even more research. We've shown, you know, these harmful effects. It just went from, here's a plant, here's stores that sell it, to, oh, gee, this is just like heroin. That's a huge leap with not a lot of research going on. That's right. Now, here I'm going to tell you what the DEA actually said about this. Kratom, this is a quote, Kratom is abused for its ability to produce opioid-like effects as marketed as a legal alternative to control substances. Law enforcement nationwide has seized more Kratom in the first half of 2016 than any previous year, probably because it's legal, Mm -hmm. generally speaking, and nobody's nobody's hiding it particularly. And it easily accounts for millions of dosage intended for what they call the recreational market. They claim that there is no medical use for it and no other way to use it that would make sense from a medical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And they claim that it has significant addictive potential. And they say that those factors constitute naming it a Schedule I controlled substance. The DEA statistics show that 600 poison control calls relating to Kratom in the five-year period from 2010 to 2015 have occurred and 15 deaths have been attributed to Kratom use, although closer inspection shows that 14 of those 15 deaths were also associated with other drugs. If you think about what's happening, the DEA, right, Mm -hmm. and the FDA got together and said, we need to get rid of this. And they're putting it at the category of heroin, 
these congressmen are actually saying we don't want this labeled at just like heroin. That's taking a big leap. Think about it. That's that's, that's putting your your power and your trust from the people who voted for you into some jeopardy if you think about it. I mean, that's right. that's really going out on a limb. I'm I'm shocked they found that many people to listen to the stories. Well, I'll tell you just why. Just what I'm saying, it's just they must have very very compelling Evidence, they must have really compelling stories that they have swayed these people. Well, here's one reason. We figured out that there was exactly one death from Kratom that was specifically attributed to it alone and not to a, that in a combination, a combination of other drugs. Which, there are 14 of those. Sure, which, which those can be explained through different things. That over the course of five years, between 2010 and 2015. Yet... In the year 2013 alone, uh-huh. there were 8,257 deaths just from heroin, not to take into account OxyContin and other kinds of painkillers as well, right. which was much, much more. So the bottom line is, what's worse? What's worse? Absolutely. Is it the one death from Kratom or 8,257 deaths? Five years, one death, 8,257 deaths, one year. I would bet my life on this, I would stake my life on this, that more people have died from an overdose of ibuprofen. Absolutely. I, I 100% That can agree. cause an allergic reaction. I personally had an allergic reaction from ibuprofen. I was taking one medicine that I didn't realize was a combination with ibuprofen. Um, I had just had surgery. I wasn't paying attention to the labels. And then I was taking just regular ibuprofen because I didn't want to take this other pain medicine so often. So my tongue swelled. I actually had difficulty breathing. Thankfully, I got to the emergency room on time. But ibuprofen has probably killed more people than the one that they can actually relate to Kratom. It is pretty amazing. Kratom, indeed, I say it is. Okay, so it's a drug. It has, has some addictive potential. Certainly a lot better drug than heroin. And the truth of the matter is, if we allow it to be a Schedule One drug, in other words, don't allow it to be available to anyone, to anyone. in the United States, exactly, that means there are going to be millions of people that are going to go maybe cold turkey on this stuff. And when you they do that, it's very possible that they may go to other opiates. And every... Or oh, go, by the way, go, to, go, go to, back to them. Go back to... Because oh, right. there are people who... Right, because Kratom is not an opiate. Exactly. Okay, so it goes from kratom or kratom to an actual opiate such as heroin, oxycontin, other other kinds of drugs that will cause things like respiratory arrest, depression, or, right. right, other issues that may actually kill them. Exactly. So expect if this ban holds there to be a number of increases in opiate opiate overdose deaths. And you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of the stories that we've read about have been people who actually transitioned off of heroin, off of oxycodone, and these other terrible mind-altering drugs went to Kratom, which they claim, I've never taken it myself, I've never taken either mind-altering drugs, so I can't compare, but they say that this allows them to not be addicted, that I even saw one woman who said she took methadone, and that made her high and didn't make her feel good. But the Kratom, she says, does not 
cloud her mind. So she was able to go from methadone to kratom. Yes, from heroin to methadone to kratom. Right. And now if she doesn't get the kratom, which allows her to think, to act, to hold a job, to actually function in society, maybe get her kids back, which were taken away by her mother, you know, maybe lead a more normal life and contribute to society mm. that these people are going to go back to what they were on before or the ones who only took Kratom may try to find something else. Exactly. You know, having said all that, though, should Kratom be regulated? Yes, as I think that it should. As things stand today, there's no accepted dosage amount of Kratom. Right. And whatever commercially available products there are out there are so widely variable in the amount of the two active ingredients. If they even have any at all. They may have you know? none. They may right. have more than you would be good for you. Uh, the bottom line is we have to find and standardize an appropriate amount for safe use. And this is something that you really can't do if the thing is completely and totally eliminated from the market. So... It's it's hard to argue that kratoms are as bad as heroin, but the last thing we want is you users to switch to substances like that. Exactly. Clearly more associated with death. Go to the more death. hard hard stuff. Yeah, I I completely agree. I, I think again with when you're discussing herbal medicine, the number one issue whenever you have herbal medicine is standardizing a dose. We understand because we've talked about this on previous shows that herbal substances, even even teas, essential oils, all of these things vary in their strength from plant to plant. So you have plants right next to each other. One is a little stronger than the other one. Maybe it got you know, a few minutes extra of sunlight, or maybe it absorbed just a little more nutrients than the one next to it. So it's a little stronger. So actually standardizing dosage would require research and trials. And getting doctors to then learn about this and to accept the idea of prescribing an herbal medicine. I mean, that's a big leap because in traditional medical professional education systems, I mean, granted there are some now that are doing a little bit more education on natural medicine, but most don't. And so these doctors just have no knowledge. They don't feel comfortable prescribing a plant. They feel comfortable prescribing, you know, uh, X milligrams of of this standardized chemical. But for them to dispense capsules that are filled with some crushed, dried leaves of something is is just out of their realm of thinking. Which is funny because in the past, (laughs) all... Conventional medicine was yes. essentially herbal you're, medicine. You're 100 you know, right. A hundred years ago, we have an entire library of 19th century medical books. We write about situations where help may not be on the way, or may not be modern medicine, and right. so we use those 19th century medical books to see what they did in the past that you might have to do in the future if something really bad happened, hey, you or might, even if you were in a disaster. You might have to grow your own medicine someday. And sure enough, all these herbs and things that are considered alternative medicines today, mm-hmm. guess what? That was conventional medicine <laughs> was 100 all, years ago. It was all they had. I know. It was just all they had. Now, there were snake oil salesmen, for real snake oil salesmen, who came around all of the towns and said, you know, here, I'm going to open up my cart, and I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to sell you this tincture or this extract or this, 
you know, elix- elixir was a big thing. Right. And it's going to cure everything that everyone has from arthritis to whatever. <laughs> Just exactly. On and on and on. It's going to fix everything. Well, and nothing's a cure-all. No, and that's the point. Nothing's a cure-all. And then they would leave. So there were always, there's always going to be that fragment of society who tries to sell the snake oil. But I think this really needs to be researched. I think it needs to become more of an establishment uh, alternative for doctors to reach into their bag, more tools, more things to possibly help people, and to feel comfortable prescribing it, which means, well, it has to be a huge educational system and um, an acceptance. Absolutely. I'm with you 100%. Now, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about um, a specific herb, one that I wish I could grow down here in South Florida, but it just doesn't quite like to live in South Florida. But you might be able to grow it, depending on where you live. Let's talk a little bit about the history real quickly of chamomile. The ancient Egyptians revered chamomile for its healing properties, believing it to be a sacred gift from the sun god Ra. It was used medicinally cosmetically and in mummifying the dead. Greek physicians prescribed chamomile for fevers and gynecological problems. Chamomile found its way into European herbal medicine as early as the first century AD and during the Middle Ages it was an essential plant in monastery gardens. Herbals of the time comment that its use was to ease digestive complaints and tension, aid sleep, and dissolve kidney stones and gallstones. It was introduced to North America by the European colonists in the 16th century. It was prescribed in the 1800s to treat digestive problems and skin conditions, and it still remains a very popular treatment. Let's talk a little bit about cultivation and harvesting. Chamomile is easily grown from seed and self-sows freely, which is great because the seed will spread and pop up again. If allowed to go to seed, chamomile will be found at Garden's Edge the following spring, growing on its own. From sowing seed to flowering, chamomile is a short-lived annual, lasting about eight weeks, germinating in early spring and completing its growing cycle by the end of June. German chamomile likes full sun and will grow in almost any soil. It does well in sandy loam with good drainage. Chamomile is a cool-weather plant, which, of course, is why it won't grow down here in South Florida. And does best in early spring and early summer. Wilting under the summer heat, of course, (laughs) which is what we have year-round. It's grown commercially in several places. So let's talk about the therapeutic uses. It's a great digestive aid used for colic, mouth ulcers, eczema. It's a treasured herbal medicine, and it has soothed digestive systems and calmed people for all centuries and all ages. But not until the 1970s were scientists able to document and verify chamomile's healing and protective effects on the gastrointestinal mucosa. Germany's health authorities recognized the effectiveness of chamomile for relieving digestive spasms and inflammation when taken internally. Chamomile eases bloating and indigestion when taken after meals and can soothe occasional heartburn. Many herbalists consider chamomile the premier children's herb for easing upset tummies and calming frayed nerves after an exhausting day. Remember Peter Rabbit? His mother gave him a dose of chamomile tea. 
one tablespoon to be taken at bedtime. After his escapade sampling all the vegetables in Mr. McGregor's garden, left him with a tummy that needed soothing. A study of colicky babies found that chamomile, in combination with other herbs, was highly effective in reducing crying times when the babies were compared with those in the control group. Chamomile is also popular for relieving inflammation of the mouth and skin. A study of patients with chronic mouth ulcers found a remarkable 82% rated chamomile extract as excellent for relieving pain. Compounds in chamomile have been shown to enhance skin healing and help prevent infection. Applied topically, a proprietary chamomile cream was shown to be as effective as low-dose, over-the-counter hydrocortisone cream for relieving eczema. Chamomile also found in creams designed to soothe and heal diaper rash, skin irritations, and minor wounds. Germany's Health Commission also recognizes the effectiveness of using chamomile externally for inflammation of the skin and mucous membranes, including those of the mouth and gums. So how to use this? A tea would probably be the easiest thing to do. Pour one cup of boiling water over one teaspoon of the herb. Steep or let it sit for five to seven minutes. The longer it steeps, the more powerful its calming effects. Capsules can be made. 500 to 1,000 milligrams of dried chamomile flowers taken two to three times per day. You can also make a tincture, which, by the way, tastes absolutely horrible. Anyone who's ever had tinctures, there's probably not a tincture out there that someone said, oh, that is really yummy. How delicious. Not going to happen. So what do you do? Two to three milliliters taken two to three times a day. Now, I do suggest if you're going to drink tinctures, mix them with a little bit of fruit juice, maybe an apple juice or grape juice or an orange juice might help you swallow it a little bit better. Or even a little bit of honey, which would probably be the best thing to do. Maybe a tablespoon of honey with this mixed in with it and then put that on a big spoon and swallow it down. Can't go wrong with raw honey, I'll tell you what. Topical, creams are available. You can also find some really great herbalists out there that make some fantastic combinations of herbs that have chamomile in them. Very soothing. I do have a hiker camper, which has chamomile in it, and uh, it is helping to heal my second-degree burn. It's very safe. In rare cases, there are allergic reactions that could occur, especially with those who have severe ragweed allergies. This is Nurse Amy. I'm saying goodbye also for Dr. Bones. This is the Survival Medicine Hour. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.